Hi, Frank. How are you? I opened the room early to um, to give uh, Dr. Mavridou some time to, um, because she's still new to Clubhouse, so uh, to give her some time to find the room. All right. Uh, okay. Maybe, I, you know, should I come stay or come, come back later? Yeah, it's up to you. You can stay. It's like, it starts in like seven minutes, so yeah. Uh, for the uh, the April ninth event, I talked to a rich sportsman. I uh, I think you know uh, who is and uh, he uh, is interested. And I, you know, uh, since you also agree, I'll just uh, add him as a co-host. Yep. Thank you for doing that. Yeah, that's perfect. And uh, next week we'll have a very interesting presentation. Did, did you see the link? I think I put it in the... So there, there are too many events <laughs> happening. On okay. Thursday, this I just made today, he uh, answered me and wanted to meet right away. He looked at our website and was impressed with the guest speakers. So he said yes. That's how he said, uh, that's what he wrote in the email. So I was kind of happy about that. Um, He's a really great physicist, so he... Hi, Despoina. Um, thank you for coming. We are a little bit early, so we'll just wait for... Give people time to come. Just open the room ahead of time, so you would have time to find it. <laughs> thank you. Oh, yeah. So on Thursday, he is... Uh, I had sent you the paper. He developed... Uh, new theory of entropy to solve problems in material science and he he was huge paper that just came out so he's coming on thursday so i think you will enjoy that too wow that's fantastic um that's i'll definitely read the paper uh very soon uh and give some if yeah so have some ideas so the uh, by the way uh, your ch back uh, you know channel like a uh, uh, group can you assign like admin to me as well or just like there isn't that function i'm not i'm not familiar yeah i don't know how it works well, i'll yeah i'll try to figure it out i don't okay. know i wanted i want to uh, you know bring uh, rich i don't know if you are mutual yeah, friends so if i are, wanted if... to add him but it doesn't work, so I think I'll just make a new one because it gives me very few options. Hi, <laughs> you found the the button to unmute. Aman, yes. Can you hear me? <laughs> yes, we can hear you. How are you? Okay, doing? great. I'm good. How are you? Good, good. Um, yeah, thanks for coming. Thanks. I'll introduce you in a few minutes, mm -hmm. around sure. four to five minutes, and then. Will uh, the stage is yours? So people will still come in. So let's give people some time, and then thank Absolutely. you. That's with the altmet altmetric. So I have been adding them mm -hmm. to all the YouTube. Like I added them to all the YouTube and podcast stuff. Great. So, 
yeah so i will keep doing that now so that's fantastic glad to hear it <laughs> good uh it will benefit you know all the other guests yeah everybody for sure <laughs> yeah that's so good and um yeah how how was your week it's been okay um the usual marking scripts <laughs> teaching is killing me but yeah other than that uh, okay i think normal what about you yeah yeah i i have i have a project you know i cannot share too much but um sure that has been in the company been dragging a long mm -hmm. time so i was assigned to now step in and and uh, help the people to get the project Good. going uh -huh. so today was the first bigger meeting and there was a lot of conflict so. okay sounds stressful <laughs> Yeah, I just, you know, because the boss said I should come in and make a experimental plan, but then, you know, I just come in to something that's already their project for like a year, so it's not easy. Yeah, yeah. It's not, it's not pleasant, is it? No, but, you know, I can't just say no. So. Mm -hmm. Anyhow, I mean, it's a fun project, but I, you know, I am understand that people get like yeah i think that's normal yeah so yeah other than that everything was good the weather is finally good here i don't know how it is well we are quite blessed <laughs> like yeah, it's we I know. have like 80 90 degrees so we can't complain really oh wow yeah well it is texas <laughs> yeah it is texas so so yeah, it's now summer mode at this point. Yeah, here was two and it's immediately everything is full because where I live, it's close. It's Williamsburg is relatively close to mm -hmm. the new parks by the river they made. Yeah, yeah. But it's crazy to find a parking, so many people. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes I enjoy when it's raining with nobody there. Yeah. I'm liking the campus being empty for spring break, I can tell you. Oh, yeah. How is already? Yeah, we have spring break now this week. It's finishing now. Uh, we're um, back in classes next week. Yeah, already. Mm, only one week. <laughs> yeah, my kids will have spring break, so... Uh, yeah, we are not synchro with the rest of the country, that's true, so. I never know, don't know what to do with spring break and that weird second winter break. <laughs> well, I know what to do with it, I can catch up on my to-do list. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but with the kids, you know. Uh, yeah, that's a, big, a problem. They are not good camps uh, this time, like not like in the summer. And uh, yeah, it's too I short. To, I used to just bring them into the university, and since my, especially my son, he like talks like a grown up, so he would have like real conversations with all the PhD students and everything. <laughs> I guess he entertained them, them, right? Like having him around. 
Yes, exactly. So that was, but I cannot do that at the company. So. Yeah. Hi, Eric. How are you? Sorry, I was pinging people and I wasn't wasn't checking. Oh no, that's okay. Yeah, hi. Um, yeah, awesome title. Um, yeah, looking forward to. It. Thank you. Okay, we can slowly start and introduce, and then I think you know people will will start coming in. What what do you think? Sure, yeah, absolutely. Okay, so welcome everyone to the Science Society. Um, we have another evening of really amazing, a really amazing guest speaker. Uh, we are very honored to have Dr. Mavridu. Um, and uh, let me introduce you um, and give you a little bit of background information. Um, so, um, um, Dr. Maridu is an assistant professor in molecular biosciences, and um, she is a chemist by degree, and she finished her undergrad studies at the University of Athens and um, she then did her PhD in biochemistry at the University of Oxford, where she worked with Stuart Ferguson and Christina Redfield. And um, already back then, her, her project was um, about um, structure to function studies of Ericia coli uh, DSBD, um, central protein for um, bond formation in the periplasma of gram-negative bacteria. And then after finishing her PhD, she remains uh, for some time in the same research lab as a postdoc. And then um, she branched out to, um, um, and uh, oh, in 2014, she was awarded the MRC Career Development Award to start her own research group at the MRC Center of Molecular Bacteriology and Infection at the Imperial College London. And um, she, um, she also spent, before starting her fellowship, a year as a research fellow in the Department of Zoology in Oxford um, as part of the research group of Kevin Foster and Stuart West. And um, there, um, at the Imperial College, um, Dr. Mavidou led her own research team and performed studies in the area of redox biology, bacterial antibiotic resistance, and polymicrobial uh, community composition. And then she joined the Department of Molecular Biosciences at the University of Texas in Austin as a, a assistant professor in March 2020. So, um, yeah. Thank you so much for coming um, and sharing your very important and very interesting research with us. Thank you, Katarina. That's very nice of you and a very nice introduction. Um, so hi, everyone. My name is Despina Mavridou. 
and please feel free to interrupt me at any point. I like questions and I'd prefer to chat with you rather than just um, just talking myself. Um, so I guess I should introduce um, what we do and what this work is about. So as most of you know, antibiotic resistance is a big problem. Um, this problem uh, is um, is uh, a major um, threat for uh, modern medicine for two reasons. First of all, uh, bacteria are becoming more and more resistant to the antibiotics we currently have. Uh, and at the same time, we have not really discovered many new drugs since, um, well, the, the 80s, 90s, really. We have a huge antibiotic discovery void uh, that has been lasting for a long time. And uh, currently, um, we need to find new antibiotics to treat resistant bacteria, but also we need to make sure that we uh, find new strategies to um, protect the antibiotics we already have. And this work that was published recently is mostly about that. It's mostly about um, allowing the antibiotics we um, we have to, to work better. So um, to back down a bit on that, um, a large number of bacteria, and in fact, the most critical bacterial pathogens when it comes to resistance are what is called gram-negative bacteria. And you will have heard some of them like E. coli, Pseudomonas, Klebsiella, Acinodobacter, those are bacteria that are all gram-negative, um, have uh, one common characteristic, which is that they have two membranes. They have an outer membrane, a space, and then an inner membrane, and, and then the inside of the cell. So the fact that they have these two membranes makes them really difficult to treat with antibiotics. And uh, in fact, these two membranes are a big barrier for antibiotic discovery. So along with the fact that these two membranes are protective, it's also a problem that in between the two membranes in this space that's called the periplasmic space, uh, exist a lot of uh, resistance proteins. So these proteins have the capacity to either degrade antibiotics that enter the cell or pump them back out or uh, modify them so they don't work anymore. So, de so they're definitely a big problem uh, when it comes to resistance because they are allowing the bacteria to incapacitate the antibiotics we're using. So a lot of efforts have been made recently to somehow um, deal with this problem of this particular bacteria, which are at the top of the WHO list for critical pathogens. And there's a number of ways people have tried that. Um, one way is to try and um, attack the outer membrane uh, by using compounds that permeabilize it so that basically you only have to go through the one membrane, the inner membrane. Another way is to try and inhibit a lot of these resistance proteins that are sitting um, uh, in between the two membranes. And there's a number of um, inhibitors that are used uh, even clinically um, that actually uh, bind to the resistance proteins and then they incapacitate them so that then the antibiotic can work. And usually those are called adjuvants and they are co-administered with antibiotics. And you might have, might have been given augmenting. That's a very known combination of basically amoxicillin with clavulanic acid. The amoxicillin kills the bacteria and the clavulanic acid inhibits um, resistant proteins so that the amoxicillin can work. Um, so this is all well and good. Those are all good approaches. Um, and, and, you know, at the moment we should try everything to, to deal with resistance, resistant bacteria. 
uh, my lab has decided to go a different route. And that has been to, uh, instead of trying to either inhibit specific resistance proteins or trying to remove the outer membrane of bacteria, we wanted to see if we could prevent these resistance proteins from folding to start with. And we hoped that by doing that, we could actually target more than one resistance mechanism at, simultaneously. Because usually what happens with adjuvants is that they only attack a specific type or res of resistance because they're specific to specific resistance proteins. So um, a way to do that is to basically um, affect protein folding. Um, so generally proteins need to uh, be produced and then they need to fold in the right shape so that they can uh, be functional. And if you can prevent this process from happening, then you will end up with a non-functional resistance protein, and then um, the bacteria will be sensitive to antibiotic treatment. So from my PhD work, um, I, uh, I have worked for a long time on a process called the sulfide bond formation. And uh, these bonds um, are important because they, are, um, they allow proteins to, to fold uh, more efficiently and to, uh, and to be more stable. So I knew that this process is important for other processes in the cell, um, in the bacterial cell, uh, and nobody had ever looked at whether it's important for, for the activity of resistance proteins. So that's what we, we wanted to try. We wanted to see if we could inhibit desulfide bond formation, which is a process that allows proteins to become functional, whether we could actually um, kill too many resistant proteins at the same time. Um, and, and this indeed worked. We, we inhibited the main protein that forms the sulfide bonds in E. coli. And we could see that a number of resistant proteins were affected and they could no longer protect the uh, bacteria from the antibiotics. Um, so this protein is called DSBA and it's just a small protein that handles a lot of other proteins and helps them acquire the sulfide bonds. Um, and um, from what we first did is we deleted it and then we looked at how the resistance proteins behaved and we found that a lot of them were degraded. Um, so that meant that they were not around anymore um, to protect bacteria from antibiotics. So that was the first observation we had. Uh, and then we basically took these results into a more clinically relevant setting, which was to test um, the exact same thing on, on, on strains um, found um, from the clinic, so on clinical strains isolated from patients that were uh, naturally resistant. Um, and we found that even there, when we could uh, inhibit or delete DSBA, uh, we could actually uh, stop these strains from being resistant and we could treat uh, the bacteria with um, existing antibiotics and usually antibiotics of last resort. So antibiotics that you would get uh, if uh, you were in the ICU, if you had a very serious infection and that are particularly precious at the moment because they're um, the only thing we've got for um, very resistant bacteria. Um, and, the, and the last thing we did is we, we tested the same thing in uh, an infection model. We didn't use an animal infection model. We used a, an insect infection model to start with. And we found that, again, if, if you um, impaired uh, the sulfide bone formation and you co-administered uh, an, antib an antibiotic, you could clear um, multidrug resistance Pseudomonas aeruginosa from um, insect larvae and you could allow them to survive, whereas any other kind of single treatment, only antibiotic or only inhibitor of um, 
the death of album formation or no treatment at all ended up in 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 death of the insect larva so this is a, a preliminary uh, evidence that um, this could potentially be a useful uh, therapeutic avenue in the in the future question yeah uh, so yeah, I mean it's it's a fascinating approach. I'm you know I'm I'm curious though uh, how you incorporated selectivity in your strategy. There's a lot of proteins with disulfide bonds, and mm -hmm. imagine you know in terms of a therapy, if it you know can't go around ripping open either disulfide bond. Curious, what was selective about the 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 protein where you um, open the disulfides? Sure. Very, very good uh, question. So um, we um, basically we DSBA is only is bacterial specific. So um, while disulfide bonds are indeed needed for basically many proteins in humans and in animals, um, by inhibiting DSBA, you don't really affect any of these proteins because um, they are formed by different kind of pathways that would not be inhibited by um, a DSBA uh, inhibiting approach. So uh, in this case, we are only affecting disulfide bond formation in bacteria, um, and in this case, um, that basically uh, leads to the degradation of a number of proteins um, that are in the envelope of the bacteria, so they are proteins that are mostly localized in between the two membranes. So if you normally inhibit DSBA in bacteria uh, without antibiotic treatment, the bacteria don't die. DSBA is not an essential protein, uh, not even for bacteria. But when you inhibit DSBA in the presence of antibiotic, because you have basically not allowed the resistance proteins to fold, you then kill the bacteria through the action of the antibiotic. Is that clear? But was, but was there something um, specific that got them into the bacteria in the first place? No. So the, the, the DSBA inhibitor will go everywhere, but it will not inhibit anything on the human body because there's no DSBA in humans. Okay. So it was specific for the DSBA. Yeah. Yes. So either we deleted DSBA from bacteria to do experiments in the lab, or when we administered when we administered an inhibitor, is a DSBA inhibitor. So the only target you inhibit is that one protein in bacteria. Cool. Thank you. Any more questions? It's um, yeah. If there aren't. Any more questions? Let me just ask another. Um, sure. Which are you? Were you looking at linking them to, you know, to, well, I guess it's the site of action anywhere near the membrane, and would it make sense to link the, um, or or you know, for for more targeting, link the amoxicillin or whatever the, you know, um, the antibiotic proper is. To the inhibitor. Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. This is this is these are approaches we're looking into. Um, so um, basically, uh, this BA is sitting also in in the same space. So it's sitting in the in between the two membranes. So actually, whatever inhibitor you would need to use for it would only need to go through the outer membrane. Um, and 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 yes, uh, trying to um, link antibiotics to. Um, to inhibitors for DSBA could be a way forward, especially because amoxicillin has a way to find bacteria because it usually goes through uh, routes like the urinary tract where you often have, for example, infections. Um, and it's it's a good way to target specifically pathogens. Yeah.
So are there any particular, yes? Uh, yes, Tell uh, me. thanks. Uh, I have a question follow up uh, from uh, Serena. Mm -hmm. If it's uh, the DSBA, is, uh, is it uh, just like uh, specific to this particular uh, bacteria that you're studying, or it, it's it, it's uh, or is uh, also is a family of uh, bacteria that has uh, DSBA? Yeah, so this BA is uh, quite conserved in uh, many bacterial species, uh, very conserved in gram-negatives, which are like the most critical kind of pathogens we have at the moment and we need to deal with. Uh, but it's also found in gram-positive species, which is more like Staph aureus um, and Strep species. Um, so it's quite conserved. Um, it could, um, you know, target could um, lead to uh, treating multiple bacterial species uh, I'll be honest here, and I would say it's not, you know, you could not deal with one inhibitor for every species because uh, even within bacteria, it changes and it's diverse within the bacteria phylogeny. So you'd probably need multiple DSBA inhibitors to, to be able to um, deal with any kind of infection. So either you need a mix of DSBA inhibitors or, you, or you'd need to know what pathogen you're dealing with and administer the right inhibitor. So I don't think you could be able to to have a broad approach with a single molecule that would inhibit every single bacterial species. But you could do with broad classes of inhibitors. I see. And uh, then if it's, if it's, uh, uh, if that, in that case, is your algorithm or methods uh, can be generalized to a similar DSBA, uh, quote unquote, you know, in other, in botanine seeing that the application of your approach uh, maybe you know other bacteria has only a single uh, wall right so mm -hmm. just curious so with bacteria that have single walls uh, dsba actually sits on the surface so it's uh, anchored to the outer to their membrane their single membrane um, and uh, it sits there and it processes um, and a lot of the resistance proteins also actually sit in the same space so they are anchored to the membrane so again you know it would be the same case actually the this ba would be pretty exposed um, and uh, it would be easier to inhibit that one but i don't think that the same inhibitor that would inhibit an e coli this ba would do the same for a gram positive species like staphylococcus i think you can you can group bacteria in categories and you could probably deal with a number of important pathogens with one inhibitor, but then you'd need a different inhibitor for another class of pathogens, depending on how similar their proteins were. Thank you. Mm -hmm. For the case where it's membrane bound and exposed, um, yep. I, yep. I suppose one strategy would be to you know, put a lipid tail on it of an appropriate composition for, for those membranes. I don't think you'd need to put anything on the inhibitor. You wouldn't need really to put anything. I think you, the DSBA would be accessible to the inhibitor immediately. So I think it would be even easier to inhibit it in those in those cases, actually. And was was this um, a success story with computer aided molecular design, or, or did you just discover these in some other way? Not at all. I mean, we that it was a completely hypothesis-driven approach. So we do, did not use any any um, computer methods for this. We and it was based on the fact that we understood the biology of the bacterial species, 
um, we knew that this particular pathway was important for a number of housekeeping processes in bacteria. We knew that the same pathway was folding proteins involved in pathogenesis, like formation of toxins, formation of adhesins, and things that bacteria use to cause infection in the first place. And it's just that nobody had ever looked at whether uh, the same pathway is important for the formation of resistance proteins, even though the resistance proteins were uh, are localized in the same environment as all these other proteins I'm talking about. So it, it basically was staring us in the eyes, just that nobody had ever tried it. So that's this, awesome. That's a, that's a great example of like analytical approaches to science still being viable, that it's not all just uh, computational approximations. That's really exciting. Of course. I mean, and you know, I have no issue with AI and computational approaches. They're very useful. But I think you will still go back and you will still need to understand the physiology of, of, of whatever organism you're looking at. Um, and everything is going to go back to whatever you discover, even if you, in examples where they have discovered new compounds using AI, um, and the compounds indeed are effective and indeed are uh, killing bacteria, for example, and they could be potentially new antibiotics, you can do nothing until you understand their mode of action. Nobody's going to go forward with compounds that you don't understand how they work exactly in the cell, and that will bring you down again to um, physiology and you know an understanding of uh, biochemistry and molecular biology. So you know you we will never escape from that. So this pathway is invariant with with respect to the uh, uh, change or mutation that is um, uh, instigated by the bacteria uh, antibiotic uh, resistant uh, changes. Can you, can you say again? Because I, I, I missed uh, you in the beginning. Okay, so is this pathway invariant with respect to the, all the changes uh, undergoing uh, in, the, in the bacteria with respect to the uh, antibiotic uh, resistance? So you're asking whether we could develop resistance there, right? Yeah, so, so is, this like, uh, is this intrinsic to the survival of the... Well, it cannot so, possibly change. Uh, uh, in, in, in with respect to the survival of the bacteria and it will not change uh, even if it develops uh, various antibiotic uh, resistance? So that's the problem. Like you never know where the resistance will come from. And it's not unlike, we don't have a good enough inhibitor now to be able to do these studies to see if we can get resistance arising. Um, the good thing about um, this protein as a target is that it's not essential for bacterial survival if you don't have antibiotic present. Um, so in a way, the selective pressure is smaller um, on occasion where um, you don't have antibiotic, uh, antibiotic treatment, which is a problem that we normally have with antibiotics, that basically you are exposing all sorts of bacteria all the time. Um, from clinical waste, from environmental waste, to antibiotics, and then you get mutations enriched even when you don't, you're not actually actively doing any treatment. So with a DSBA inhibition, you don't necessarily, you will not be applying any selective pressure to bacteria unless the, you have a relevant antibiotic around. But whether you will get resistance to an inhibitor of DSBA, I can't say unless I have an inhibitor that's clinically applicable because resistance can come, resistance can come from many um, avenues. So it could be um, from things that you don't expect. The fact that it has many functions as a protein um, is promising because usually the bacteria don't know how to deal with something like that. 
but but that doesn't mean much. So like until we have an inhibitor and we know exactly what what that could um, um, be, we can't say. Uh, people have found some DSB inhibitors for other reasons, and for those ones, when they have tested them, they haven't found resistance, um, but they haven't done tests under um, antibiotic exposure. So it's hard to say now. I see. Thank you. What were the... Um... The efficacies you, you found, is this micromolar or better? So we did not use, so either we deleted the protein, in the, the gene for the protein, in which case, you know, that doesn't apply, uh, or we used a laboratory inhibitor that would not be, we would not be able to use in, you know, humans. And there, the amount that we used to have inhibition was 50 micromolar. Mm, okay. It's a good inhibitor, but it's just not appropriate for um, clinical use. Mm-hmm. It's a good tool for the lab. And um, what's the? Can you comment on the the chemical class? Is it small molecule or I mean, of the inhibitor? Yeah, it's a small molecule. Actually, it doesn't inhibit directly DSBA. It inhibits its partner protein. That's why I'm saying it's not good for clinical use. Um, so DSBA, the way it works is it makes a disulfide bond and then it needs to be regenerated from another protein called DSBB, um, mm. and then. Um, uh, that molecule inhibits this BB. Uh, so there are a number of problems with it if you were to use it in tissue, for example, in, in a human or even in an insect. So it's not applicable for clinical use. It's a very good um, tool to use in the lab for uh, when you can have completely defined conditions of bacterial growth. Well, so it may serve as a lead compound for uh you know a more thorough computational study for example mm, not really because dsbb is completely different to dsba but there's others there's other dsba inhibitors uh discovered through other approaches uh, there's some small molecule ones and there's a peptidomimetic one and those could serve as um as lead uh, compounds um the other problem until now for dsba inhibitor discovery has been that you know it's much easier to discover inhibitors if you have conditions that kill the bacteria to screen for and until now, we didn't have them. Like I said, this BA is not essential. Now that we have, now that we know that if you treat with the right antibiotics, you can get bacteria to die if you inhibit this BA, it's much more easy to screen broadly. Until now, that was not easy. And they were screening at the level of the protein, which then leads to compounds that don't necessarily get into the cell. Does that make sense? Yes, yes. And I'm wondering, I mean, from your description, this sounds like, um, yeah, you, you mentioned it was, you know, staring at us all along. Um, I, mm -hmm. you know, first became aware of the you know problem in the 90s when I was uh, working on my chemistry doctorate, um, <laughs> ironically, in computer-aided molecular design. But mm -hmm. the, um, I was struck by how much uh how 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 little interest there was in from the pharmaceutical research uh departments in pursuing this it would we would regularly hear seminars about how much of a problem it is and um you know often with doomsday tones but it, and there would be you know cynical commentary from the presenters that um in essence, the lack of interest was, uh, you know, business model related. They wanted to wait until 
it was a problem to solve it. And, it still uh, is. It still, still is. The same reasons. It's exactly the same reasons that, that um, drive this. And now there's no pharmaceutical companies that are in, that they actually officially have mostly abandoned uh, antibiotic discovery. Genentech is one of the few uh, companies that is still doing it because they think they should. Um, so more of them as a matter of principle than anything. Um, and um, and basically we are relying on academia and small biotechs um, and it's not looking good because the problem is bigger. Uh, we have exactly as many antibiotics as we had 10 or 20 or 30 years ago and all the big pharma is out officially after Akeogen closed. Um, that was their exit point. Um, yeah, and it's because it's very difficult. Uh, so they know that there is, um, basically you make a new drug and you lose money. Uh, and it's anyway very difficult to find one. And then when you market it, you, you lose money. So, and then it doesn't last long because resistance, resistance arises. So without incentives, uh, without like um, push incentives from federal governments, it's very difficult to uh, convince big pharma to invest money in this. So how long was that journey for you from when you first kind of uh, either stumbled upon or had the mm -hmm. realization, the eureka moment to when you finally saw it uh, work in the lab? Well, I mean, from the moment we started the work, I guess it was in 2017, uh, we published it this year, so it's about, you know, four and a half years. But you have to keep in mind that I was a very young group leader. I had a group of two people. Uh, we started with nothing, basically two, two E. coli strains and no tools whatsoever, no experience with antibiotics. I was a basic biochemist before that was working on kind of the pathway rather than anything um, to do with the bacterial physiology. Um, yeah, and since then, you know, I've moved continents, COVID has happened. So yeah, it could have been done maybe three and a half years. Um, so more or less about that, which is not, um, which is not a typical for most of these kind of things when they are from scratch. Yeah, no, that's, that's, uh, that's impressive. Usually I'm familiar with like it taking a decade to go through that process. So it's exciting to see uh, it accelerate, uh, even though you don't necessarily use computational tools. So I think one of the projections is usually a computational methods have the time. So a PhD taking four or five years or that kind of body of work. Mm -hmm can be boiled down to like 18 months to two years. I think that's a little ambitious, but uh, this is very exciting. I did have a question about um, like something like uh, bacteria that have other mechanisms, because you mentioned this was one of the mechanisms. Can you, uh, could you uh, briefly comment on other um, mechanisms of uh, antibiotic resistance? Sure. So this is a this particular approach is applicable to only a, a specific set of resistant proteins. So it mainly affects uh, beta lactamases, and so beta lactamases degrade beta lactams. So beta lactams are drugs like penicillin, and all their derivatives. So um, it will be effective again against many beta lactamases, not all. Uh, only the ones that have disulfide bonds, but it happens that the, a lot of the very clinically relevant ones do have disulfide bonds and are dependent on the system. Um, and then um, cholestin resistance, which is a completely different mechanism of resistance, and it has to do with a last-line treatment uh, with a, a drug cholestin. Um, and uh, 
this currently is a drug that is under threat because there's a new mechanism or resistance uh, that is generally easily disseminated um, through mobile elements. Uh, so bacteria can exchange this mechanism of resistance and we have seen increasing resistance. And this is a very, very last resort drug. So we can actually deal um, that that particular approach can actually incapacitate these enzymes as well, all of these enzymes and any new ones that might arise because they all have multiple disulfide bonds. So beyond those, um, I mean, we looked into efflux pumps and we see a small impairment there as well, but that's that's rather unimpressive compared to the other two mechanisms that we can really affect. Um, and that's about it, I would say. Uh, but that's enough. So, so what I would say is that if you could um, salvage lactams, and you are already in a good shape because you know that's all we need. Lactam, lactam antibiotics are all we need. Like they're really good drugs. They work against everything, and they're under extreme threat because we use them all the time, and we have like twenty or thirty percent resistance against them. So, just salvaging those is sufficient. And then colistin is a last resort drug that you would use if you could not use lactams. So that already is good as well. So there, there is like an alternative approach with phages. Um, uh, I guess that's uh, usually a difference in between East and West kind of, uh, they, they tend to sometimes go in different directions. Do you see your approach becoming more mainstream and effectively replacing something uh, like the previous standard or st previous protocols? I know it's a little early because you, you said it was, uh, uh, smaller models, not yet human models, but uh, what, what sure, do you see? We, we don't have an incubator yet, uh, so we are nowhere near. Um, we we are looking for, like we are planning to look for one, but we don't have an inhibitor molecule. So for for now, for for now, this is just a strategy, um, a proof of principle, a potential way forward. But without a molecule, you can't really say that this will replace anything that is already in use. When you said phages, though. Um, you mean use of phage therapy? Yeah, so a phage can either disrupt the metabolism of the bacteria or cause some other critical error. Sure, a phage will kill a bacterium, but um, there's very limited proof of use of phage therapy successfully, except topically, potentially. So the majority of ways we have to deal with bacterial infections is through the existing antibiotics we have at the moment and adjuvant antibiotic combinations. That's the main paths we have forward for dealing with bacterial infections. Sure. Um, did you want, did you still have like, um... Did you like already summarize all of what you wanted to talk about? Should we open it up to more questions or do you, do you want to continue? Sure. You know, I'm happy to have more questions. I, I mean, there's nothing more to it. This is, this is all that there is. I mean, I can go into more details about specific examples. If people are interested in specific things, I'm happy to discuss, but, um, but broadly, this is what the paper has showed that basically that you target a single protein and you can incapacitate multiple other resistance proteins um, and that allows us to treat multiple pathogens for multiple mechanisms of resistance. Um, yeah, I see that Dr. Shah and Katie um, and Janelle, like we, 
We have various people here on stage that didn't get the chance to ask a question and Frank, so please go ahead and ask your questions if you would like. I'm just here to listen, but thank you. Okay, Dr. Shah, Katie, do you have? Thank you so much, Katrina. Uh, I'm somehow in a crowded area. I'm just changing my spot, then I'll be back to ask my question. Thank you so much. Of course, sure. Um, Katie or Hansen, do you have a question? Uh, I guess I'll ask one. The from a, uh, uh, unfamiliar with a, as a layperson to to this field, could you uh, go in uh, shed sh more lights on the uh, the procedures that uh, uh, I do hear that you mentioned you are not uh, doing computational um, mm -hmm. in terms of finding the m molecules, but uh, what is the you know, there there's some uh, kind of a uh, uh, you need to uh, produce uh, uh, in in the lab in, in the E. coli the the you know uh, with the gene mm -hmm. expressions. Uh, yeah, could you? Uh, uh, so how did we detail? investigate that in the yes, lab? Yes. Yes. So so basically, we we started from the basics. Uh, we first wanted to use laboratory laboratory E. coli that we knew was really not resistant, and we had like it was completely devoid of resistance mechanisms. And so we used that E. coli and then we constructed it so it had, um, it was producing the resistance proteins that we were interested in. Um, and we did that by using, um, uh, by using the genes from the particular resistance proteins that we either synthesized or we got from um, existing uh, clinical strains. Um, and then we cloned them into a vector of choice, which is just a circular, circular piece of DNA that will actually allow the protein to express uh, in the laboratory coli. And so in this system, you know you have a very naive um, susceptible strain that will then become resistant because of the use of, of because of the presence of this um, gene that makes that protein. And in fact, we, we could see that we, we, you can measure how resistant a strain is through uh, exposing it to antibiotics and looking at what level you can of antibiotic concentration you can kill it. So you use this assay routinely to see how resistant the strain is. And after we introduced these genes to these strains, uh, we could see that they became more resistant. And then um, we constructed strains that were lacking the target protein, which is DSBA, so they couldn't make the sulfide bonds anymore. And then we could see that as soon as we did that, the uh, resistance of these laboratory strains went back down. So we knew that the the likely that the resistance mechanism were affected. Um, after we we did that and we did a number of control experiments to to make sure that this was specific to these particular resistance proteins and we were not like ruining the cells or we're not affecting their metabolism. We did all sorts of uh, control assays to make sure that we were not affecting their cell physio physiology beyond the assembly of this resistance protein. Um, then we looked at the resistance protein specifically. So you can add um, uh, specific uh, small um, tags at the end of the protein that you can then that, that they will then allow you to visualize it. So we could actually see that in the strains that could make the sulfide bonds, the resistance proteins were present. And in some cell, some, some flor fluorescence? Or? No, just affinity tags, so much smaller than uh, fluorophores. So you use a standard immunoblot against antibodies, so they could be as big as six or ten amino acids. 
and then you just um, uh, perform electrophoresis of the total protein content and you just see whether you have your protein there or not. And what we saw is that if you could form the sulfide bonds, the protein was there. If you could not form the sulfide bonds, the protein was not there anymore, or the amount was really vastly reduced. So that's that's where we were with the, let's say, completely um, laboratory side of the project. As soon as we had that and we were certain and we tested that against, you know, about, I think, 12 or 11 lactamases, and five, I think, uh, cholestin resistance proteins. So we knew that it was a broad effect across many resistance proteins. Then we went into uh, looking at uh, whether we could re recapitulate that using the inhibitor molecule. So we purchased the published inhibitor uh, for the partner protein. We first tested that it was working in our hands. So DSBA also affects bacterial motility. So that's the first thing we tried. We tried to see if the bacterial bacteria were becoming non-motile. And as soon as we could see that that was the case, um, it meant that the inhibitor was working in our hands. And then we applied that to the same strains we had used before, so the laboratory strains, that just to see that the same results that we got with the deletion of DSBA would get with the inhibition of DSBA. We saw that that was the case. And then we started applying them to clinical strains. So we had a, a number of clinical isolates. We knew what resistance proteins we, we had in there, and they were different species. Um, so we we applied the inhibitor to these species, and we saw that basically we're getting the same, well, actually larger effects there. We, we could see that um, basically there we could actually assess whether you could go from a sensitive to a, to a, from a resistant to a sensitive strain. Since there's published guidelines about the level of, um, you know, resistance that would allow you to treat or not with an antibiotic, then you could you could go and check exactly whether you were going from a strain you could treat to a strain a strain you could not treat to a strain you could treat so we had big drops in their mic's as they called which are the minimum inhibitory concentration for drugs when we were applying the inhibitor as well is that clear oh yeah thanks uh, it's, a, it's a very fascinating very interesting so just uh, in terms of uh, uh what you shared the uh, uh just try to see if I got it right. So the mm -hmm. uh, so for your uh, algorithm, your uh, the the approach that uh, there are probably other uh, and you know uh, resistance uh, antibiotic resistance uh, mechanism that are outside. So yeah, at this point, you can clearly draw the boundary of uh, the scope, and mm -hmm. you, you can enumerate. You know what, 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 what the type of uh, proteins that are are dependent on the the DS. I mean, in your approach, you can you know just enumerate uh, what what will be effective, right? So, yeah. any other uh, uh, important uh, uh, target lying outside, uh, maybe your next or or, or anything so... that uh, worthy. So I think we've covered, so we have um, a number of proteins um, covered in this first publication. Um, there's a next one coming soon that has another bunch of them. Um, it's the same types of proteins, like meaning it's the same mechanisms of resistance. It's different. So like with beta-lactamases, those enzymes that break down beta-lactam antibiotics, there's 6,500 enzymes currently identified to date. So it's a huge space. Um, you can classify these enzymes into about 500 phylogenetically different families, so discrete families of enzymes. 
And we can affect quite a lot of these families already from the first study, and we are looking at some more, and we are looking at some that are more infection-specific, so that it might apply more for, say, for example, cystic fibrosis patients. It's the same mechanism of resistance, just different enzymes that apply in different uh, scenarios. Um, so we're moving towards there to explore the whole space. Um, with cholestine resistance, we have covered all of the span of these proteins, and we are pretty certain that all of them are affected if the SPA is not there. So we can predict that even if new ones arise, and they do arise regularly, those will be also affected. Um, there is not many more mechanisms or resistance in that space that the SBA would affect. Um, but there's other similar proteins like DSBA that do different kind of processes that allow for proteins to fold correctly that could be targets for other kind of resistance mechanisms. Uh, and that's something that is we're looking into going into like in the future, but it's it's a whole different project. We're still working we're still we're still working on this particular aspect. We still have stuff to do here. Well, thank you. So you mentioned in the paper, I think there's one anti-rheumatic rheumatic drug mm -hmm. that maybe... Or nothing. Yeah. yeah, but that's the only one currently known, right? Is there anyone trying to um, to use it? Uh, For MCR, yeah. So Ranofin is... Um, was found uh, through a, a screen of uh, FDA-approved compounds as a existing approved drug that can actually um, impair MCR and proteins, so one of the two enzyme mechanisms we're talking about, and a few beta-lactamases, only one class of them. Um, that paper got published in, if I remember correctly, in 2021, and I haven't heard whether like a, it's not in clinical use for this for resistance yet obviously it's it's an approved drug for um, rheumatism but it's not something that to be repurposed they will have to go through a certain level of trialing i think yeah I hope but that was also very promising like it had very promising specs as well the the results were very exciting for that paper yeah that's interesting maybe they could start trying it in very like um, cases that are quite hopeless you know, by um, by approved just by a single patient and start this way. Um, Compassionate use. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. That's, uh, that's how phage therapy has been used in the past in a few successful cases, and it was successful. Although it's not clear exactly what happened, but yeah, it was successful in principle. Yeah, it's not very helpful, you know, for doing a systematic study but just to get started no. and get people interested in it sometimes those case reports if they get attention yeah. that's useful because it's an fda approved drug so one could actually um you know do that whereas with something like our inhibitor like it's not even our inhibitor something like the inhibitor we used is not possible because that's not approved in any way or effective in any way in, in mammals. So, so yeah, it's much more difficult to, to try that there. I had a question. Sure. So you had mentioned that there are 6,500 enzymes identified mm -hmm. to date with, yep. with about 500 classes. So the implications you're finding apply to 
how many of these? Oh, I can pull up the statistics we have. Uh, so we are comparable to other existing adjuvant approaches. Uh, let me pull up um, my notes so I can tell you exactly without um, let me find it a second. So give me a second. We're we're pleased to wait for for good information. Uh, sure. Uh. Table. We had a table with a comparison compared to other adjuvants. Yeah, so basically, um, classical inhibitors that have been in the clinic since the 80s and 90s uh, can inhibit an, about 125 families. New generation inhibitors um, have similar success rate, about 190 families of enzymes. The difference is they can do multi more more enzymes like they can do more different enzymes sometimes at the same um, time yes yes um and then um in development there's a particular inhibitor called for example taniborbactam that is um phase three clinical trials and it's very exciting because it can basically almost do um so vitalactamases can be f uh, divided into four empirical classes a b c and d and B is a particularly difficult class that is further divided into three subclasses. So Taniborbactam, which is in development at the moment, um, can do A, C, D, and B3, uh, sorry, B2. Um, and that's um, uh, about 276 families. So um, our approach would do about 180 families. Uh, the difference is that it can also do um, a couple of, a few families that are nothing else can do so far from the big clade. And again, um, one thing to keep in mind is that we're not competing with these other approaches. They're all needed. <laughs> so so this one that is in development, it's hopeful, um, it's very exciting, but often, even if these adjuvants are put in clinical trial and then are put into practice, you get in, in, uh, resistance against even the adjuvant so both the antibiotic and the adjuvant. And so the more you have, the better. It's one of these uh, cases where um, they keep being developed, uh, especially against these enzymes, because they're extremely precious. So, so yeah, it's, it's not um, a competition. So we, are, so we are on a similar level, uh, but we have some enzymes that other approaches don't have, which is good, because that means that you have a broader spectrum of um, inhibitors that you can use. Cooperation over competition sounds like evolution to me. <laughs> Depends what you mean. Bacteria competition is more prevalent, but uh, but hopefully in humans that's not the case. I meant uh, sort of at the the macro scale of things. Yeah, the macro scale. Yeah, that's true. I mean, this is one of these cases where the more the better. Like we, it's it's not useless to have more options with these infections. Absolutely. Thank you. How's the funding situation for this kind of research? Is there a lot or is there still not enough attention to this problem? Like, does the Bill Gates Foundation or so give money or, you know, like they did with the COVID vaccine? Or is it still not uh, in the focus of 
of people. I don't think the Bill Gates Foundation gives much on resistance, actually, to be honest with you. Um, so personally, I'm funded by the NIH at the moment, uh, but uh, still the research we do is on, on the fundamental level. Um, and um, the problem really will be when, if potentially we had a molecule that looked good and it was a potentially promising inhibitor. For example, it worked on bacteria and it killed resistant bacteria along with an antibiotic. We happened to show that it worked in mice and it had good cytotoxicity specs. There we would be in a problem because that is the space where there's the gap of funding. So while you're still trying to develop something at a fundamental level, you can get funding. If you're past the preclinical trial level, you can potentially sell or give your invention to something like a pharma company to, to develop it if they were interested. But in between, that's where it, a lot of things die off. So, so we, as a lab, we're not in a in this position yet because we don't have a potential molecule. So we're still funded at a fundamental level from uh, the NIH. Yeah, that's not the first time I hear it. A colleague and friend of mine from Italy, she's a biochemist. She does develops a lot of epigenetic drugs. Mm-hmm. Are really great. I mean, there's one she developed for chronic pain for severe mm-hmm. chronic pain it looks great in mice like mm-hmm. you don't have the addiction issues and mm-hmm. drowsiness and toxicity looks great and she doesn't get funding to continue yeah that space is uh, is a huge problem and that's why uh, these pull and pull and push incentives are are implemented for example there's carbex now which hope and another organizations like carbex that hopefully will hopefully uh, they do actually provide much more uh, funding for smaller biotechs um, or even research groups in universities to push their discoveries through to the next level. Um, I think that's working. Um, the push incentives. Uh, the problem we will, ha- we will have again with that is that when when those even get pushed further down the line, a big pharma has to take that on for you know um, producing it and marketing it and they will still lose money so even if we had a, a perfect drug i doubt that it would be that easy to put it on the market but um i guess we're not there yet <laughs> so how, yeah, how much of drug is... development goes to how much of a drug development budget goes to marketing i think it's substantial uh yeah i, I meant more like um it's proven now that if you produce an antibiotic and put it on the market, you lose money. Just It just happens. That's what, that's what happened to Archaeogen. Uh, the, the company had a huge amount of value while they were developing their drug. And as soon as it hit the market officially, their stocks plummeted and they, they closed down. Um, because the, the, the antibiotics are cheap and there's no incentives to um, prescribe more expensive ones if um, the older ones work or could work uh, and there's a push from insurance companies to keep doing that, to keep giving the cheaper ones. The older ones are cheaper. And so you can imagine if you you, you basically 
um, as a pharma company, you take something that was in preclinical or phase one clinical trials. I think that's the best a researcher can do, bring it to that level. Um, and then takes it to do phase two clinical trials, phase, phase three clinical trials, and put it on the market, produce it and put it on the market. This is still millions to billions of dollars. Um, at that point, if, it, if then it's not sold or if it's not sold expensively enough, then, then they will not make money. They will lose money. And so that's why they don't want them anymore. So they need to be subsidized by other um, sources, governments usually. I guess what I'm saying is that I feel that science should be funded properly, and that's clearly not the case at this time. Mm -hmm. I think still, um, I mean, I, I find that for um, research around resistance, uh, there's a general acceptance from the funding bodies that this is a big problem and there is support. Um, but um, with antibiotics, the problem comes more down the line, I think, than the initial discovery. Uh, and that problem is known to exist, and it has to do with the fact that it's very hard to convince companies to lose money for producing products. They need to be incentivized otherwise. Yeah, I know of one area where there would be significant demand for this. In fact, I... Uh... Uh, back channel message you. Uh, it's a talk by a DARPA uh, program manager, and he talks about how the warfighter, the soldiers who are at the front lines, when they get injured, uh, mm -hmm. not uh, like their injuries sometimes make them succumb to infection, and through the treatment of antibiotics uh, so early on, the ones who do survive that process end up having this critical infection anyway. So they went through all of this sacrifice and suffering and then in the end it's a little microbe that gets them so i think that's a that's an immediate application for that and there's probably a lot of uh, incentive there so uh you should sure. definitely try to connect with that program manager yeah darpa is on my radar uh, or, or for, you're on theirs funding <laughs> or i'm on theirs well i hope so but uh, but um, but uh, yeah, the the soldiers have specific problems, especially with Acinetobacter, which is a very nasty bug, um, which commonly is found in sites of um, battle sites and infects them. And you know, it's they're incredibly resistant. So so yeah, I agree. What about the meat industry? I mean, they use antibiotics all the time, but probably they want to use the cheapest one and and. Probably yeah, they do. There's a lot of resistance there. They actually contribute to the problem. Yeah, that's <laughs> so. Um, yeah, absolutely. So cholestin resistance, those those particular proteins that we study, that are mobilizable and they move around, the genes move around. Um, they came from the agricultural industry. Uh, cholestin didn't used to be used uh, to be used in the clinic because it's very nephrotoxic, so it causes kidney toxicity. Um, and basically, that's why it was used extensively in agriculture. And in 2015, um, these new resistant proteins were identified that uh, were jumping around in multiple uh, strains in the clinic. Um, and then two years later, cholestin re-entered the clinic because we need it, because sometimes there's nothing else we can treat with. And now we have this problem that basically came from, from agriculture. Now they have stopped using it in the animal feed. Uh, but, you know, the mechanism is now there. Yeah, so maybe the governments have to force them to use an um, inhibitor or a resistant breaking compound and then 
that would be a way to make money no i don't know yeah that would probably be like a regulatory framework that's a that's a really good uh as a countermeasure maybe they should make them pay for the damage that they've caused or that yeah like the nicotine like the cigarette companies and so on that's a good idea for now, it's good that they've stopped doing it because, um, you know, within within. Well, what are they using instead? Have they been... haven't just stopped responding to the threat. The threat hasn't abated yet. Well, they stopped using that particular antibiotic, which is uh, extremely precious in the clinic, um, and that will help with the the resistance kind of jumping around everywhere. Um, to be fair, like this resistance mechanism came out of nowhere, and we still really don't know where it's coming from uh why it came like that so so it wasn't really you know there was nothing nefarious here i think that it was bacteria can always get around whatever you throw at them to kill them They're i bet ones. i bet if you were to dig into their internal documentation they were certainly aware of this problem it's possible i bet yeah i, I can't Uh, I, I just said it's probably a good bet, but uh, a little bit conspiratorial because uh, I don't <laughs> think so. Some companies may accidentally have stumbled upon this, so I don't want to make. I want to make sure we're not painting all companies with the same kind of uh, tinfoil hat there. Well, I mean, I, I I'm just overgeneralizing based on my experience with documents in court based on various different industries being aware of the threats that they're posing. But we, we, we shall not get to, to tinfoil hat. It certainly took a while to stop this practice. I will agree to that. And the, um, the resistance was there already and we knew about it for a while. But also things are very slow to change in all of these contexts. So until something is clear to be a very important threat and really a big problem it takes a while and it has to be demonstrated in court usually beyond a reasonable doubt kind of like how tobacco took a while and uh, just the the joke about tobacco scientists is that they could disprove gravity so uh <laughs> sometimes you're working against a very strong lobby that's a great example i mean tobacco is a perfect example of internal documentation proving that they were aware of the threat. But we digress. Yeah, um, I wanted to check in with you uh, because we we reached like an hour, so that's um, I think the time you have available. So I don't know if anyone has a last question or so. Please. I have one question. So, eventually. So, my question. Thank you so much, first of all, for I mean sharing the, the I mean fascinating topic. And my question is: uh, most of the approaches happen about the uh, proplasmic, actually protein, right? As far as we go, yes. Uh-oh, connectivity issues. Yeah, I think we lost her. Yeah, I think so. Uh, I can um, write Dr. Shah that or Dr. Shah, maybe you want to write us the question and then either I'll forward it or, you know, 
through email or direct messaging, I, I guess. Um, and I, ha I have time. I'm happy to stay for a couple more minutes. Um, you know, it's, it's fine by me. Uh, if there are more questions, I'm happy to answer them. Um, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, so that's great. So, so let me uh, ask one. The so uh, I'm curious. The could you uh, 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 explain more? I mean, the when when you say the uh, share the feeling that uh, the solution is staring at uh, us all, but uh, you're the you know somehow you you you, you there's a light bulb you know, eureka moment that's uh, coding IO the uh, the so as I understand so far is the there is a particular uh, family uh, you know one uh, the you, you call uh, lactamates that uh, I mean mm -hmm. the t so so the traditional people who are not you know previously they just think uh, to uh, come up with a ever newer you know uh, antibiotics and didn't mm -hmm. think of I mean. Well, it's definitely you know the, from from the logic if you actually disrupt uh the 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 the, the underlying uh, mechanism together you know it's like you know you, you you take off the the headquarters right so then yeah it seems to be definitely it's the staring right so i'm just you know shocked that these you know it's a there has to be some difficulties uh, or some conceptual or build in you know well, made out of I think yeah, so why did they, had they not realized it? Well, um, I mean, this is in no way a criticism to the current efforts to inhibit beta-lactamases with inhibitors. Um, I mean, they have been successful and those are compounds that are in clinical use and they are extremely important. Um, it's just that, it, you know, they're more limited in terms of what they can target, how many things they can target. Um, and sometimes you get resistance to them arising quite readily, but it's what has saved beta lactams from you know from the 80s onwards. So it's been a huge effort. Um, I think you need to have a bit of a niche expertise to realize what we realized. Like I've worked on the DSB system, which is the broader family of DSBA belongs to, since 2004. Um, I know the system really well. It's been already proposed as a broad acting strategy to store virulence, which is nothing to do with resistance, has to do with the ability of a bacterium to invade a host. And so it, for me, it was a small step um, towards that the right direction. I think um, because this BA is not an essential protein for cell viability and is a, a big gear towards looking for silver bullets and things that will kill bacteria off the bat, that's probably why that has never been on the radar. I have to say that I've once in a while, I have bumped upon people who were doing um, kind of non-specific screens against resistance. And after hearing my talk, they would tell me, oh, now I understand why we were getting DSBA as a good target uh, from our screens. But we never understood the physiology, why it was coming up as such a good hit for resistance. And and like, again, you need to have the right background to appreciate um, that connection. And it's not a very, it's a, very, a bit of a niche expertise, I think. That's why. I see. Thank you. So you, that you mentioned, I hear you mentioned that you were heat resistance. Could Sorry? you explain? 
you, did you say heat resistance or I, no no I, they were they were just heats uh they would do broad screens using transposon libraries and try and find genes that would be affected um that if you affected these genes you would get resistance phenotypes you would get like lack of resistance and dsba was always coming high up on their screens but they just were disregarding it because they couldn't understand why that was relevant. Because if you look at what it does, if you look at DSBA, if you Google DSBA, it will come up as disulfide bond formation protein, which doesn't give you any idea about resistance. So I they see. were just disregarding yeah. it, I think, sometimes when they were actually identifying it as a potential promising avenue. Nice. That's great. Could you say the disulfide bonding what? Um, DSBA. That's what DSBA does. Yes, that's what it does. It makes disulfide bonds in, in proteins, and so it makes a disulfide bond in resistance proteins, and then if you don't make that bond, the resistance proteins uh, crumble and they don't form at all. Um, Katrina, there was a... Has Dr. Sam managed to send her comment over? Uh, yeah, she, um, she wrote me um that uh, if you could share more about the proteomic approaches uh that that you are uh, used that was what meaning you... how we figured out that um the resistance proteins were degraded is that we didn't really use broad proteomics approaches we just used um we just looked specifically at the proteins of interest so we looked specifically at the resistance proteins we were expressing and we wanted to see if those proteins were stable or not in the absence of DSBA. So we used just immunoblotting against those specific um, proteins. So there was no proteomics in this, not, not, not any broad proteomics approaches really involved in this study. Does that answer the question? Yeah, I think so. Uh, um, yeah, I think so. Um, yeah, I'd like this i i know it's like fancy nowadays to write you know used ai or some machine learning but i think if we <laughs> if we have like i think still our mind if we are like well like if we worked in this for a while i think our mind is still better at finding good targets than um than random machine learning approaches because it could just mm -hmm. be random correlation that just happens for no reason also. I'm very critical sometimes. I agree with you. I mean, there's two schools when it comes to antibiotic discovery. You have like completely cell-based assays where you throw at them compound libraries and you see what inhibits their growth and you can use machine learning or not. Um, or, but even if you're just doing it all empirically, it's just a non-hypothesis-driven um, approaches where you should just take things through. Uh, compound libraries and just see what inhibits cell growth. And then there's hypothesis-driven approaches where you think that something should be a good target and then you specifically test it and then you hope to find an inhibitor. I would say both have been unsuccessful or both have been equally successful. You can call it either way. Um, well, not, we with still the don't first, have drugs. not with the first good antibiotic, right? Because, um, you know, history of antibiotics when, you know, um, the first one was discovered. Germany, I think hundreds of scientists under Bayer and other chemical companies mm -hmm. in Germany back then were 
just brute force trying all compounds out they had from mm -hmm. actually coloring, right? It was, was And they it? discovered some, indeed. They discovered the sulfur drugs, they discovered natural products like all the naturally like originating antibiotics. But these spaces are now quite um, done. Like, But, you know, it was brute force, but the really mm -hmm. active one was not discovered by, you know, brute force. No, no, then it was optimized, of course. Yeah. Exactly. Yes, of course, of course. You always need to do that. Like that, that is, that we are aware of that. That that is, um, it needs thinking and optimizing. But now we don't even have that. We don't even have the, you know, the initial brute force directing us towards the right scaffolds, either natural or or synthetic. Those are both uh, appropriate, but both spaces are dry at the moment, mostly dry. Can't lie, I'm really loving this overlap of the term brute force between the cyber realm and the biological realm. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I guess. I'm just using it because I think Germany was very mad that, you know, they spent a lot of money and a lot of manpower and then, you know, the person that uh, discovered the really effective one was... It's no, appropriate. It it's appropriate. <laughs> I mean, you know, we're living in a realm, uh, we're living in a time of merged biology and technology. So, yeah, brute force it. Yeah, I love it. <laughs> yeah, I compare a little bit, you know, the machine learning approach with back in time, what the Germans did at those companies with what. You know, I compare a little bit that with that, just, you know, not thinking, just screen whatever you have and throw it on there. I mean, yeah, it's maybe both work, but not every uh, country can afford the type of brute force approach. I think it's not realistic. Plus, recently, it just leads to the discovery of the same antibiotics we already know about. <laughs> yeah. So we have a huge problem on that area. You spend all this money, you do this brute force approach, you spend time to screen, whatever, and then you, you come back to, oh, well, we know about this already. <laughs> so yeah, we need to do something outside that realm, I think. Yeah. Um, again, thank you so much. I'm not sure if anyone has another question, please go ahead. Um, sure. We have been going for an hour and 15 minutes. Thank you so much for being so generous with it's your time today and for coming. Uh, I know, <laughs> you know, joining Clubhouse and everything is really, you know, thank That's you. That's my fault for being uh, adhering to old technology, but thankfully my husband's phone works. So. <laughs> <laughs> no, thank you for going through all the trouble for coming. Sure, no problem. Really appreciate it. Yeah, no, thank you. Made this uh, Friday extra special, knowing that there is some salvation against uh, all the threats from the microscopic world. So a little bit of hope on a Friday. And now we can all go celebrate or relax or whatnot. So thank you for joining us. Absolutely. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks, everybody. Yeah. Have a good thank weekend. Thank you. Have a good weekend. Um, and um, thanks, everyone, for coming and asking great questions. And um, please join, if you like rooms like this, uh, please join Science Society. Um, and uh, we will have more rooms with um, uh, great guest speakers, um, with uh, real scientists <laughs> that do real research uh, that you can interact with.
um, we have actually tomorrow. Uh, let me um, just tell you, we have tomorrow two rooms, one at uh, 12 p.m. EST, Dr. Pri Darshini, uh, who um, had the recent publication about suppressing genes across generations, it's a Nature Methods paper, so she will be presenting. And then at 9 p.m. tomorrow, you have Dr. Lee from NIH uh, with his recent publication, uh, where he shows that mitochondria act as <clears throat> little micro lenses in cone cells, which I think was really interesting. So, um, and he happily, gladly agreed to come. So, yeah. And then on Monday, we have two um, scientists that will explain to us how spiders fly. It will be really interesting, um, um, that paper. And, um, and then how neurons find their place. And then on Thursday, we have a really great um, addition that came in today with Dr. Liu. Uh, he developed a new theory of entropy solving material designs um, that, um, that will enable us to produce way smaller new gadgets and <laughs> So um, yeah, I'm I'm really glad he he agreed today to come. I met with him, um, so it will be another exciting week, and we are not done yet. Tomorrow will be uh, two interesting rooms. So join us again, and and thank you everyone. We'll just have to hang in there for the uh, spider information. Uh -huh. Oh yeah, that will that paper is so cool. Let me just. Go. Yeah, I'll I'll on the Twitter announcement. I'll share the paper. It's really cool. <laughs> so yeah, I'm happy they agreed to come. So um, they joined the club and and um yeah. So I I could add them to the room. So I'm really looking forward to having them. Okay, and rest of your Friday wherever you are and um, hear you back soon. Thank you everyone. Awesome. Take care buddy. Thanks uh, Katarina. Uh, do follow uh, the Science Society, you know, uh, there are so many interesting talks coming up. Yep, exactly. Thank you so much, Frank. Thanks for helping everyone. Bye.